A very good evening to you. It's good to be here tonight at Grange. And I think I've been thrown into the deep end with these questions that I've been asked. Uh, I had to go and study some of these things out for myself and uh, try to get my head around some of these issues. And uh, you know, my job tonight, I'm a, I'm a pastor, my job tonight as a preacher of the Word of God is just to say what the Bible says. That's all I've got to do. I've just got to say what the Bible says. And so any question, any question you care to ask, I believe the Bible ultimately has the answer to that question. And that includes the three questions that we're asking tonight in light of climate change and the so-called climate crisis. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I'd like you to turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the very first book of Moses. Genesis chapter 1, and I want to read it with you from verse 26 down to verse 31. It says, verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. God blessed them. God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. God said, Behold, I give you every herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree-yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life. I have given every green herb for meat, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good. In the evening and the morning were the sixth day. We trust the Lord will have his blessing in the reading of his precious and his eternal word. Well, I have been invited this evening to answer three great questions. Questions that occupy the minds of Christians and many non-Christians alike. And there's a common thread to all three questions. For each one of them connects us in some way with the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and also with the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And the three questions tonight, if you're not already familiar with them, is how flawed is man's science without faith in God or the Word of God? Then secondly, this man produces milk, beef, lamb, chicken, and so on. Is this now wrong? The third question, does this world have an end date? And if so, can we delay it? Well, let's think about the first of these three questions this evening. How flawed is man's science without faith in God or the Word of God? Now, let me begin by saying there is no such thing as man's science. There's only science. That's all there is. And the word science just means knowledge. But I think when the question was posed, the questioner had in mind a school of scientific thought 
that seeks to discount God. You see, just as some of the great scientists of the past began with the presupposition of a creator God, many in the scientific field today begin with the presuppositional stance of atheism, that there is no God. In other words, wherever the science leads us, it must not lead us back to God, because we have discounted God from the very uh, first. And the problem with that approach is that it raises more questions than it answers. And you end up swallowing a hypothesis uh, which holds that nothing produced everything, that non-life produced conscious life, that randomness resulted in precision and chaos created order. Now for me that is personally too great a leap of faith to take, but that's where the majority of people in our society are tonight, and that is essentially what they believe. Now if we believe the Bible, we believe that this planet upon which we are situated and man are the special creation of God, that God made the planet as man's habitation, and man is then charged with being a steward of the planet. He's made responsible for the management of the planet. As we just read there in verse 28, God said unto man, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fire of the air, over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And then in the next chapter, chapter 2 and verse 15, we say that the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to dress it, and to keep it. So let me say right off, as Christians, we ought not to be against recycling. There's nothing wrong with recycling. There's nothing wrong with minimizing our waste. We ought not to be against, uh, put or, or be against trying to clean up the environment, clean up the seas, clean up the air. That's a perfectly legitimate uh, aspiration and, uh, and, uh, and, a, and a, a, pater- uh, uh, a perfectly legitimate project to be engaged in. Uh, we as Christians should recognize that. Nobody wants their air polluted. Nobody wants the seas polluted. Uh, nobody wants just wanton waste. We're supposed to manage and be stewards of this planet. And if, as we believe, God created this planet and then he gave man dominion over it, we should expect then that the planet will sustain life as long as God intends it to. And therefore, that the earth's temperature and weather systems are controlled within certain parameters that we're neither going to burn up nor are we likely to freeze over. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17 says this, For by him, by Christ, were all things created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him, and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And the word consist there is a very interesting word. It means to be held together. By him is everything sustained. So Christ is both our creator and our sustainer. In other words, God, not man, is in control of the planet and its well-being. And if you believe that, then it's reasonable as an extension of that uh, particular position that you would expect the earth's temperature to be contained within certain parameters. Now the alternative to that 
is that we are the product of mere chance and that there is no God. Stephen Jay Gould, an American paleontologist and evolutionary biologist, put it this way, we are here because an odd group of fishes has a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Now let me say that that has never been observed. Empirical science has never observed such a transition taking place. However, we continue. He says, we are here because an odd group of fishes has a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures because the earth never froze entirely during the ice age because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. Now if that is true, then there is no reason to expect that the temperature of the earth will be maintained within a particular range. So we eliminate God from our thinking, we become the masters of our own destiny, and uh, we elevate man, man becomes God, and he believes that he alone must control the weather systems of the world and deal with rising temperatures of allegedly man-made climate change. Now, let me help you here. The scriptures detail such thinking in the book of Romans in chapter 1, when it says this. It says, for the invisible things of him, verse 20, Romans 1, 20, for the invisible things of him, of God, from the creation of the world, are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So God points to the creation as evidence of his own existence, as a creator, as a designer. The Bible speaks here about his eternal power. And of course, there are times when we stand in awe at the power of God as it's unleashed on this world in various forms, whether that be by uh, means of tornadoes or volcanoes or, uh, or whatever, uh, other means, earthquake and all the rest of it. All those great cataclysmic events that terrorize the life out of us speak about the great power of God and the power that brought this world into being. And it says that not only is his eternal power on you, but also his Godhead, that the triunity of God is seen right throughout the creation. Now we don't have time to get into that tonight, but it says they are therefore without excuse, verse 21, because that when they knew God, not in a personal sense, but in a realization of his creation, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, and became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. And then if you go down to verse 25, it says, Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Now that's where you are if you discount God. 
If you say that God didn't make a world that is very clearly precise and ordered and designed, if you say that this was all a result of random chance that, that were just here by some mass chemical uh, reaction in, going in billions of years gone by, without even explaining where the chemicals came from and how that reaction could have taken place, if you believe that, you end up really qualifying uh, as one of those who, professing themselves to be wise, became as fools. Now, has then atheistic and secular science got it wrong? Well, not entirely. There's no doubt the Earth's temperature is rising, at least in the short term. And that is observable and few would deny. For example, we know the Earth's temperature has risen and fallen over the years. Uh, there was a time, we know, when the Vikings farmed Greenland. Greenland now is uh, almost entirely covered uh, by snow and ice. But there was a time when the Vikings farmed Greenland. There was a time regularly when the River Thames in London would freeze over in the winter and people would enjoy skating on the river. The canals of Holland froze regularly and people would be able to skate from time to time in winter months. Now these things are no longer the case. So temperatures have risen, fallen and risen again. Now believe it or not, and this really took me by surprise when I began to look at this, we don't have an awful lot of data to determine whether or not the temperature of the earth right now is rising in the kind of unprecedented way that climate alarmists are suggesting. You know, I was listening to the BBC this week, and you can, you know, I can almost write the BBC news before they even put it on. It always, always tells you what the headlines are going to be. Anyway, I was watching the BBC news this week, and of course, as they do almost nightly, they had a section on the climate crisis. And the BBC reported this week that sea temperatures are at their highest for 26,000 years. And I thought to myself, that's a remarkable piece of journalism, given that the oldest known organized writing system in existence is on the Palermo Stone, which exists from 3000 BC. In other words, there is no evidence that mankind was able to write in a systematic way until 3000 BC. But the BBC tell us that 26,000 years ago, 21,000 years before the Palermo Stone, there were people who were registering the temperature of the sea and we're keeping a record of it for our benefit all these years later. So you've got to ask the question, who exactly was notarizing sea temperatures 26,000 years ago, if indeed you believe the world is that old? But who was notarizing this, and where are these records? And the answer is that there wasn't anybody notarizing that, and there are no such records. That that statement is made as a result of computer modeling. So those models make assumptions based upon the information that is fed into them. Now, many of us will be old enough to remember the dawn of personal home computing. 
And in the early days of home computing, you would have heard the little phrase, garbage in, garbage out. Meaning that whatever you tapped into your computer was exactly what you were going to get out of your computer. So when you use computer modeling, you have people who have already decided that this matter of climate crisis is a reality, and they feed information in that supports that thesis or that hypothesis, and lo and behold, the information they get out confirms the hypothesis that they began with in the first place. Now here's the facts. The fact of the matter is that we only began recording temperatures, and this did surprise me, from 1880. Isn't that shocking? I was surprised by that. Only from 1880 did we begin recording temperatures. And there was problems from that at that point later on throughout the whole of the 20th century. There was problems with the consistency of the data that was being recorded because they were recording temperatures on the earth, sometimes in different locations, sometimes in different times of the day. So as you know, if you go at 9 o'clock in the morning, take the temperature, it's going to be cooler than if you go at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and take the temperature. And so consequently, the data wasn't entirely uh, dependable, and it wasn't until 2002 that satellites had their orbits adjusted so as they could calibrate the temperature readings upon the Earth, so they read uh, each time from the same place at the same time of day. So really what we have here is about 20 years of accurate data to work with, hard enough to make the sweeping claims that we are living on the eve of destruction as a consequence of a climate crisis. Now we do know and we understand that temperatures rose from 1900 to 1940. Then they declined from 1940 to 1970. Now I went to school in the 1970s. In the 1970s the, uh, the issue of the day was not that the earth was warming but that the earth was cooling. And we were told we were going to enter into a new ice age. That, and I remember being taught this in, in uh, high school, uh, being taught this in secondary school. We were entering into a new ice age that the sun was gradually burning itself out. And soon the entire world would be frozen over and man would not be able to serve any. But then what happened? Well, in 1980, temperatures began to rise again. And they continued to rise until the year 2000. Now, do these short-term trends really add up to unprecedented rise in global temperatures? I think really it's questionable. Furthermore, looking back over the history of climate science, we find literally dozens, scores of false predictions telling us the end is now. In 1971, Dr. S. Ira Sue of NASA and Columbia University said there would be a disastrous new ice age by 2020 or 2030. Well, I think if you look out the window, you can see that that didn't happen. In 1988, the New York Times reported the Maldives would be underwater by 2018. The Maldives are still above water, 
And Riley started to threaten them as being underwater yet again. In 1989, one leading climate scientist told the media that by 2019, New York's West Side Highway, which runs alongside the Hudson River, will be underwater and there will be tape across the windows, across the street, because of high winds. The truth of the matter is that the West Side Highway in New York is still operational and there are no windows that are taped up anywhere in the city of New York owing to extreme wind. Monday the 20th of March 2000, the independent newspaper carried a story claiming that snow would be a thing of the past in Britain. That, and yet with all, since then, we have had snow on and off, including the infamous Beast from the East some five years ago. On the 14th of December 2008, former presidential candidate Al Gore predicted that the North Polar Ice Cap would complete, be completely ice-free in five years by 2013. It's not ice-free. It's never been ice-free. He also said that there would be a catastrophic rise in sea levels, eroding large stretches of coastline. Uh, his book, An Inconvenient Truth, became a bestseller, as indeed did the documentary that accompanied it, and he went on a worldwide tour promoting both. And from the proceeds of that tour, the book, and the documentary, he bought a $9 million, now listen, here's the important detail, Ocean View House in California. Now it would seem to me that a man who says there's going to be a catastrophic rise in sea levels, if he really believed it, should be smart enough not to buy a very expensive home by the sea. The Guardian then reported in February 2004 that Britain would be Siberian in less than 20 years. Which is it to be? Is it to be lots of snow, as the Guardian reported? Or no snow at all, as the Independent reported? You see, you can't have it both ways. Now, we could be here all night, and I could have taken you through dozens and dozens of such failed predictions from the 1970s to the present, but it all shows how precarious the climate science so-called is. For more than 50 years, climate alarmists have been uh, telling us that this is going to happen, that is going to happen, and of all their predictions, not one, not even one, has come to pass. And if you challenge this, and this is the thing that bothers me, if you challenge this, you are then labeled a climate denier or a nutcase of some kind. In other words, you're shut down, you're closed down. In certain instances, it's not permissible even to question this matter. When something cannot be questioned, friends, it moves out of the realm of science and into the realm of ideology. And there's a difference between science and ideology. And that's where we are at today. 
You say, well, what about greenhouse gases? What about CO2? Well, first of all, when I was at school, I was taught, as I'm sure you were taught, that CO2 in the atmosphere was necessary for plant life and for the essential existence of life on Earth. But despite this fact, Lisa Jackson of the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency declared that CO2 was a pollutant under the Clean Air Act and deemed it a hazard to human life. Now that's called very bad science. Yet we're constantly told that CO2 is the most troublesome greenhouse gas. Man-made CO2 makes up between 4 to 20% of the greenhouse effect. The other 80% is created by water and clouds in the atmosphere. And yet nobody seems to talk about the 80%, only the 4 to 20%. And you may say, well, wait a minute, Pastor Brewer. Don't the scientists agree that greenhouse gas is an issue and, and there is a climate crisis, and do you think too? In 2019, 11,258 scientists from all around the world signed a statement in which they clearly and unequivocally stated that planet Earth is facing a climate emergency. And so when you have 11,258 scientists who all signed a document that they all agreed to the same thing, and they all made the same statement, you say, well, surely they can't be wrong. But how many of those scientists were engaged in climate science? Now, there's a different question, and here's the answer. Just 2% of them. 240 of those 11,000 scientists were engaged in climate science. Out of the thousands of climate scientists that operate around the world, that was a very small proportion. Only a very small sampling believe we're facing imminent doom. Which then raises the question, what about the other scientists? Well, let's ask ourselves a simple question. What does a paleontologist or a nutritionalist or a computer scientist or someone who's an expert in linguistics know about climate? The answer is, they don't know any more about it than you know or I know. But we're led to believe that consensus counts, that science is in agreement, and therefore if people say it is so, it must be so, and you must accept it as so, because the experts tell us it's so. Friends, scientific facts are never decided by consensus. Never. Otherwise, no one would have ever accepted that the earth was a globe instead of being flat. Incidentally, when science was presenting the world as flat, the Bible describes it in Isaiah and the Job as being a sphere and as hanging in space. The Bible says they hang the earth upon nothing in the book of Job 26 and verse 7. And that he sits upon the full circle of the earth in Isaiah 40, 22. And the Hebrew word indicates a sphere, a globe. The Bible is not a scientific book. As such, it's not a scientific textbook. But where the Bible and science cross, you'll find that there is no discrepancy between what the Bible says and what we know true science says. So for the past 20 years or so, climate change and global warming, as it was first called, has been blamed on almost every ill 
in our society. And CO2 has been identified as public enemy number one. But it seems to me that the science is too scant to establish that. Or indeed in certain instances it's not truly science at all. Second question. This land produces milk, beef, lamb, chicken, and so on. Is this now wrong? We all know that the Northern Ireland Assembly uh, passed a climate act, and that climate act requires the farming sector to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And so farmers in Northern Ireland will need to lose more than one million sheep and cattle to meet this target. Now, it's said that emissions from UK farms make up about a tenth of the nation's overall greenhouse gas total, which has prompted many people to believe that to help climate change and to, in their words, save the planet, we need to end or at least severely reduce meat production and consumption. So they have this idea that livestock and dairy farming are the biggest source of greenhouse gases. But the fact is that livestock accounts for 3.7% of net UK emissions and that figure is falling even as we speak. So it's also untrue uh, to believe and to teach that the methane gas from cattle is responsible for global warming. Methane is a flow gas. What does that mean? It means that it simply goes out into the atmosphere and after about 12 years it disappears into the atmosphere whereas carbon will hang in the atmosphere for some 200 years. So what's going on here? Why this push against meat? Why this push against livestock? When we go back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis, we find there in Genesis 1.29, at the outset of this phrase, that man was indeed, at the beginning, a vegetarian. That God, in his creation, made it so that nothing died, and that man could live off the land. Verse 29 of that chapter said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat, or it shall be for food. And then Adam was placed in the garden and told, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But all this changes after Noah's flood. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, if you care to look it up, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, the same command that Adam was given. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. Now there is a change. And upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea, into your hand are they delivered. Verse 3 notice, Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you. All things. So from that time to this, man has been a, has been a carnivore. He's one who's eaten uh, meat. Now the Jewish people, we know, were prohibited from eating certain kinds of meats. Uh, land animals had to have uh, cloven hooves, split hooves, and had to chew the cud, meaning that they had to be grass-eating animals. Uh, fish had to be ate, had to have fins and scales. Shellfish were prohibited under the law. It was forbidden to eat birds of prey or carrion, but poultry was allowed. And all of that was purposed to separate the Jew 
from the Gentile that separated Israel from the nation surrounding her to protect the messianic line ultimately and to preserve Israel as a nation. But in Acts chapter 10, a very interesting thing happens for the believing Jew. Look to, look to Acts chapter 10, if you would. In Acts chapter 10, we have the story of a, a man the name of Cornelius. Uh, Cornelius is desirous to know the way to God. And the Apostle Peter is going to be sent to Cornelius' house, uh, indeed to share that message with him. And uh, in verse 9, we read that uh, two men, three men, I can't remember, two or three, were, were sent uh, on the morrow, verse 9, as they went on their journey, they drew near unto the city. Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour, about midday. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance. And he saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending onto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth. Wherein were all manner, all kinds of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done thrice three times, and the vessel was received again into the heavens. Now, from that moment on, the standard was set for the Christian, whether it came from a Jewish background or from a Gentile background, believers were no longer obligated by the Jewish law with respect to dietary regulation and were free to eat whatsoever we wish without exception. Look in 1 Timothy, if you will, and chapter 4, because we come now to a passage that has eschatological significance. It, it is a passage which reflects on the last days and on the end times. And it speaks about this matter of meaning and, and so on. In chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, in verse 1, Paul writes, Now the Spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. Notice this now, what a word of warning. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and notice this line, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Now that goes right back to Acts 10. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. Now there's a great deal we could say about this subject tonight, but I want to think for a moment about the rise in veganism and vegetarianism. Now, I remember vegetarianism becoming trendy. Uh, some of you may remember back to uh, the latter end of the Beatles' career and George Harrison going out to India and getting involved with Hinduism and, and bringing a lot of New Age ideas into the West. 
And so uh, vegetarianism really came about in the 1970s, the 1980s. It began to pick up and, uh, and gather speed as a movement. There's two movements, actually. First of all, you have the New Age movement, which based itself upon ancient Hinduism. It was a modern form of Hinduism. Now, it brought with it many of the characteristics of Hinduism. And of course, the very heart of Hinduism is the doctrine of reincarnation. You know, Hindus do not believe that when you die, you're buried, and you'll be risen again, as Christians believe. Uh, but they believe that when you die, you come back to life in some other form. Uh, if you were badly behaved, you might come back as a slug or a rat or a mouse or something. If you were well behaved, you might move into a higher caste system uh, and become a wealthier and more influential figure in society. That's at the heart of Hinduism. Also within Hinduism is the idea that certain animals are sacred, in particular the cow is sacred. And so you will find in India's streets that uh, cattle roam freely through the streets, that they're often allowed to eat food without uh, any, anybody trying to chase them away or move them away. Uh, they'll work right through the grain and untouched, nobody will bother with them. And certainly nobody is going to eat beef. Why? Because if you eat cattle, you're either eating a god or you're eating perhaps your reincarnated granny or something, somebody else that you might know. Now that's the first movement. The second movement was the animal welfare movement. And it emerged in groups such as uh, PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And interestingly, the lady who founded that particular organization spent her formative years in India, surrounded by Hinduism. Now, let me begin by saying, I, I don't think that anybody would again say this, everybody should favor the ethical treatment of animals. The Bible the legislates uh, for the ethical treatment of animals, for animal welfare. But scripture is clear, and we just read it in Genesis chapter 9, that after the flood, God opened the door to meet Enoch, and he pointed Noah uh, to the animal kingdom as a means of providing for our nutrition. Now, if you don't like the taste of meat, or you don't like the texture of meat, well, that's one thing. But if you've adopted vegetarianism or veganism, as a moral platform, you're going to have a great deal of difficulty defending that from the Word of God. A number of years ago when my wife and I were first married, uh, she came home one rainy evening from work. She was very excited. She said to me, oh, she says, I met a fellow in town. Uh, he belongs to a Christian fellowship. He was selling books uh, for a pound and I, and I bought one. And I said, well, what was the book? She says, well, I don't know. I didn't have the time to look at it. She says, it's in my handbag if you want to pull it out. And so I pulled it out, and it was a book full of vegetarian recipes. It was a book produced by the Hare Krishna movement. And I said to my wife, dear, he didn't say Christian fellowship. He said Krishna fellowship. <laughs> but anyway, I had the book. And I decided to read the preface to the book, or the introductory chapter uh, to the book. And uh, in the introductory chapter, they amazingly cited the Bible in defense of vegetarianism. And the suggestion was made that Noah was a vegetarian, that Daniel was a vegetarian, and that Jesus himself was a vegetarian. 
But a number of years later, I, I was in Paisley, just outside of Glasgow, preaching, and uh, I happened by uh, a Woolworths. There was in the doorway a young man, a Hare Krishna devotee, who was handing out this same book. It was called The Higher Taste. And so I was walking by him with my friend, a fellow pastor. We were walking past him, and I said, hold on a minute, I want to chat to this guy. And I went over and I chatted with him. I said, listen, uh, I see you're, you're giving away this book, The Higher Taste. He says, yes, I am. I said, you know, that book tells me that Noah was a vegetarian. He says, yes, he was. I says, that's really strange. I says, where do you get that in the Bible? And he went to Genesis chapter 9. And uh, where it says there that uh, every green thing, uh, let me just read it to you. Um, don't want to misquote it. Don't want to misquote him. Be unfair. Uh, it says, uh, even as the green herb have I given you all things. That was the quotation. And I said, but what about the line before that? Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you. I said, I don't know about you, but my carrots are pretty stationary. They don't have to chase them around the field to catch them. Daniel was a vegetarian. Well, we know that Daniel wouldn't defile himself with the king's meat. But in that instance, it was because the meat was offered to idols. And he was making a, a separate stance. And he was making the point that he belonged to the Lord God of Israel and wouldn't bind himself to the idols of Babylon. So I pointed that out to him. And I said then, you say that Jesus was a vegetarian. He said, well, yes. I said, you realize that the Passover meal, they eat lamb. Did you know that? And I says, after his resurrection, the Lord Jesus met his disciples on the shore of Galilee, and he cooked them a breakfast that included fish. He said, what's your point? <laughs> I said, my point is, that you have believed a lie and you're propagating a lie. And he said, Well, you've made it. Now go away. <laughs> and I said, Well, I will go away if you'll answer me this one question. <clears throat> this is the question every one of us needs to answer. I said, What are you going to do with your sin? And he said, That's none of your business. And I said, Okay, then let me rephrase the question. What should I do with my sin? He said, I don't know. And there's the tragedy. Maybe you're here tonight and you don't know what to do with your sin. Well, listen in. We're going to tell you at the end of the evening exactly what you want to do about your sin. Well, you can't help but have noticed now the push to promote veganism, the push to reduce meat consumption on the basis that we are, in so doing, saving the planet. But do you really believe that? Do you really believe that by not eating beef, we're actually going to save this planet? I mean, it's interesting that the politicians who are preaching that the hardest sat down in last year's COP26 conference in Glasgow, they sat down to a menu that included burgers, haggis, venison, cheese, and beef ramen. You see, it's one law for them and another law for everybody else. But the fact is that the world is being 
told to cut back on me. And that is indicative, according to 1 Timothy chapter 4, of the last days. We're being told to abstain from meats. That's a characteristic of an age in a society that is surrendering itself to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. It's a sign of the times. It's an indication, friends, that Jesus is coming again. Third question. Does this world have an end date? And if so, can we delay it? Well, over and over, the climate alarmists are telling us that our days are numbered unless we act now. So we heavily tax fossil fuels. We want to rid the world of planes, trains, and cars. We stop eating meat and so on. We fill our land and seas with wind the turbines and we buy electric vehicles and all of this is apparently so that we can delay global catastrophe. A catastrophe that has been wrongly predicted since the 1960s. Yet we know the world will end. And it will end in a climate catastrophe. It will come to a cataclysmic end. Jesus spoke about it in Luke 21 when he said this in verse 25, that there would be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth, the stress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven shall be shaken. And in Matthew chapter 24, when the Lord Jesus was asked about the end of the age and about his coming, he pointed to the signs that would indicate his coming. Things such as famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. Some of the things that we are seeing increasingly in the world around us today. Those things might well be that which Jesus described as the beginning of sorrows. It may be signaling the end of time. Ultimately, he spoke of a day in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. You see, the Bible talked about global warming long before man talked about global warming. Does the world have an end date? For sure it does. That's the concern of Many of our young people today who were told struggle with eco-anxiety, that they are concerned that there's, uh, that there's going to be environmental doom. But can we delay the end of the earth? Not for one minute. Can we do anything to prevent it? Nothing at all. You see, Acts 17 tells us that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. There is judgment coming, friends, and there is nothing you or I or anyone else can do to stand. No amount of wind turbines, no amount of recycling, no amount of electric cars or energy-saving bulbs will keep that from happening. Right now, the only thing that delays Earth's destruction 
is God's grace. Amen. Look with me, if you will, in 2 Peter chapter 3. This is our final reading for this evening. 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 3. Peter says, Knowing this first, that there shall come, notice the phrase, in the last days, scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming, of Christ's coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. It's called uniformitarianism. The idea that things have always been as they are now, and we can work on this present set of circumstances in which we find ourselves and work backwards over thousands and even millions of years. It's a flawed ideology. Verse 5 says, For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. So he talks about the world that was. A world that was destroyed in the time of Noah by a global flood. And that global flood is evidenced by the fossil record that you see around the world today with multiple animals that have been preserved in sandstone and have been preserved suddenly in sandstone, not through millions of years. There's one particular fossil that shows a whale giving birth. Another one shows a fish eating a smaller fish. You know, it doesn't take a whale billions of years to give birth. It happens in a moment. But in a moment of time, God destroyed this planet. And the destruction of the planet is seen in the fossil record. That's the world that was. But then Peter talks about the world that is. He says in verse 7, about the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, notice what it says, are kept in store. In other words, the world's going nowhere until God determines it. The world that now is, is kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, or tossed to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hasting on to the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. That's where we are today. God is, keep, is keeping this earth in store. He is reserving this planet until the day that he himself decides to destroy it by fire. Then there is an earth that is to come. Verse 13. Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for, a, for new heavens and a new earth 
wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Can we delay this moment of global destruction at the hand of God? Not a chance. But I tell you what does delay it. Verse 9 states it for us. That God is not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. That we are the subjects of a gracious God. And in grace he is affording mankind an opportunity to take stock of himself. To admit himself a sinner. And to acknowledge that Christ has come and died for him. And place his trust in Jesus as his saviour. You know friends, at the end of last year, the UK government hosted that COP26 conference in Glasgow. A global climate summit. By the time it came to its end, 25,000 delegates flew home in 400 airplanes. Many of them in private jets, having told you and I to cut back on our flying. The President of America returned to the USA in one of his four jets. We all know it takes four jets to move one man. Four jets. Those jets carried with them his 84-car cavalcade. You, you go out in your car, and the climate alarmists are going, no, 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 no. President Biden has said, you mustn't do that. But when he goes out, 84 cars. And the computer entrepreneur, Bill Gates, sealed away his super yacht, which sends more carbon into the air than any jet liner, having instructed us all to drive electric vehicles. Greta Thunberg and her teenage followers went back to school, oblivious to the fact that their trendy trainers create more than half the carbon emissions of the entire aviation industry. For a full fortnight, we heard that we were on the brink of environmental disaster. Indeed, we heard virtually nothing else. In fact, Hardly a day goes by, but that we don't hear that we're in the midst of a climate crisis. And one government advisor, Steve Hilton, said this. The inevitable conclusion is that some form of almost spiritual climate cult has taken possession of the political, media, and business establishment. That's a government minister. A spiritual climate cult has taken over, he says. And indeed it has. And our own Prime Minister, who is part of that climate cult, told delegates at COP26, it's one minute to midnight on the doomsday clock, and we need to act now. Well, friends, it is one minute to midnight on the doomsday clock, and we do need to act now. The planet is on the eve of destruction. But in the end, that event will not occur because President Putin pushed the nuclear button, nor because you or I ate one hamburger too many. It will happen because God decreed it to happen. And he, and he alone, 
will initiate it with a trumpet sound as Jesus comes again. Friend, your creator, your sustainer, your redeemer, the one who gives you life and breath and all things is soon to appear and you need to be ready. He came 2,000 years ago as your saviour. He will come again as judge. When he will come, well, who can say? But we can say this. We're 2,000 years closer to it today than when he first came. If you're here and you're not a Christian, let me say that you need to be seen. The hour is late. Christ is coming. And this world as it stands is doomed. If you are a Christian, you need to get busy sharing Christ with a world that seems to me to be more lost than ever it was. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts.